Work, work, all I ever do is work. Do you know at times that feeling? You have just cleaned the house and then the boys come back from football and whoosh, everything is dirty again. Or you have just handed in your homework and the teacher gives you another pile. Or you have just fixed the dishwasher and now the washing machine goes. And you have just solved a problem in your office and there the boss is with another one. What is it all for? And what difference does it make? And that was, of course, the question that Ecclesiastes was struggling with. Now, today's text is Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, which is about the question, how can we use our time and our talents well? How are we to work in this world here in London around us and at the same time walk with him and persevere in our calling, as the Apostle Paul says? How is that related to our daily work? And if you take a step back and you reflect on life, on its brevity and its transitoriness, and then on the other hand on our heavenly calling, how then do all our work and our efforts, the toil and the trouble, as Psalm 90 calls it, how do they fit in? And how are we to set our priorities when only so limited a number of things can be achieved? And when you think about that question, you can feel some sympathy with, sympathy with the wisdom teacher, the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Often the results are vanity, and we pass away, our works pass away, or another benefit from them. But you may also have noticed how surprisingly close the wisdom teacher's conclusion in the last verse 26 we read comes to the parable. For it says, For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. The wisdom teacher and the Lord Jesus were far apart in time, maybe a thousand years. But in their conclusion, they're pretty close. And that, of course, is because it's all God's work, word. Now, before we turn to our text, let us look at the context. Always look at the context. The parable is part of the section consisting of the chapter 24 and 25, which is also called the Olivet Discourse. It's a speech, a lesson, and actually it's the last one, because here we are already in the Passion Week. That week which began with the entry into Jerusalem of the Lord Jesus as the humble king riding on the colt of a donkey in chapter 21. And then there was the temple cleansing and the victory and we are very close now to the final days of the Lord Jesus on earth in chapter 26. And his walk on earth is approaching its climax. And then this is the last lesson about the future. He is looking at what is about to happen. And if we pick up on 20, in chapter 23, the last few verses, he is in Jerusalem 
And we read, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the lamentation over Jerusalem and its temple, which had pointed in its cult to him as the Messiah, but had rejected him. And from now on, there will be only confrontation, betrayal, and death. And then chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was walking away. He went out and departed. It's not like he was popping out and coming back. There is something definitive about these two verbs. Jerusalem is left behind. Of course, there will be the confrontation and there will be the trial, but there will be no more teaching, calling, because the chicks did not want to be gathered. And then he leaves and he sits on the Mount of Olives. Now, on that location, about that location, it is of symbolic importance. Because from there, the Lord Jesus will ascend to heaven. You can read that in Acts 1, verse 12. And in accordance with the prophecy of Zechariah 14, verse 4, there at the end of time, he will return. And in that location, he speaks of that future, which is framed, as it were, by his coming soon and his final coming and returning later. The location also is of practical relevance. Jerusalem and the temple were built on a high plateau with a very steep ridge at the end, which was going down into the valley of the Kidron and then gently sloping up towards the Mount of Olives, covered with olive groves. It was quiet outside the hustle-bustle of the city, but also with a beautiful and clear view across that valley to the temple in all its beauty and grandeur, its enormous white blocks of marble shining in the sunlight. And there he teaches the disciples, because they were probably confused and surprised, about Jesus' lament over Jerusalem and his final abrupt departure from the temple. You see, in Jewish eschatology, in how the Jewish people expected the future to unfold, Jerusalem and the temple would be there forever. And there the Davidic king, the Messiah, would return. And what shape that would take exactly was probably somewhat vague in their mind, but after a period of turbulence, the birth pains of the Messiah, he would take up residence in Jerusalem, probably in or close to the temple, and from there rule the world. And the disciples now point at the beauty and the glory of these impressive buildings across the valley. And they sort of hesitantly say, Lord, see the temple. What about it? Doesn't it play a role in your plans? Why are you so walking away from it? And the Lord Jesus' answer, which we read, must have been shocking for them, because not a stone will be left on the other. And, of course, that answer leads to further questions in chapter 24, the verses 1 to 3. When will this destruction then happen? 
And when will you as the Messiah come and reveal yourself as the Messiah at the end of time? And then the Lord Jesus answer first to the question, when will Jerusalem be destroyed? Starts with a warning. In chapter 24, the verses 4 to 15. And he tells them in the future there will be confusion, deception, and desertion. There will be false messiahs, and their first love will grow cold. But also, before the end comes, the gospel will be preached to all nations. And then from verse 15 onwards, he starts to answer that first question. And it is couched in the apocalyptic language of the Old Testament prophets, and I think the apostles would probably have recognized the style and the genre. And that concludes then with the verse that we read, 34. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And indeed... In A.D. 70, the Roman general Titus destroys the temple. And as the Lord Jesus prophesied, we can read in the histories of Josephus, the Jewish historian who was very much in the middle of it all, that it was a most horrible event. A siege, violent fighting, cannibalism, and in the end, total carnage and destruction. And Jerusalem is raised to the ground. After a transition period lasting 40 years after this event described in our text, the Old Testament temple was definitely phased out by God. Before this generation passes away, the temple will pass away. And all things will pass away. Only the Lord's words, including this prophecy, will survive. And then the Lord starts answering that second question, when will you come? When that will happen, it says in verse 36, only God knows. No one knows about that day, or even the angel, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. And life will be going on as usual, we read in verse 37, like at the time of Noah. And it will come as a total surprise, we read in verse 39 and verse 50, but it will be decisive judgment. Verse 40. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. And therefore, the Lord's conclusion, the warning and the lesson of this Olivet Discourse is there in verse 42 and 44. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And verse 44, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then there are three parables in which the Lord explains what this watch and be ready now means in the reality of life, in the reality of that time between his going and his coming. And there is first the parable of the faithful and evil servant in the verses 45 to 51. And then there is the well-known parable of the ten virgins, 25, verses 1 to 13. And then there is our text, verse 14 to 13. And then thereupon, the Olivet Discourse ends with the announcement of, at the end of time, the Lord's return and his judgment between the sheep and the goats, 
You can read that in chapter 25 from verse 32 onwards. So in his last lesson, already in the final week of the Lord's suffering, he looks into the future. Jerusalem will be destroyed within a generation and the Old Testament time is definitely over. And judgment and the Lord's return will definitely come, but only God knows when. And the disciples and we have to wait, be ready like the virgins. We have to work and be faithful in the parable of the talents. And therefore, I would like to summarize the message of God's word for you this morning as follows. Until the Lord returns in judgment, the faithful servant must use his talents for the Lord. And we know two things. What you refuse to use, you will lose. And what you faithfully spend, the Lord will extend. So then, until the Lord returns in judgment, the faithful servant must use his talents for the Lord. And there is then in the first place the warning that what you refuse to use, you will lose. In his answer to the question, when will you come, when will it be then the end of the age, the Lord has responded that only God knows that day, and his conclusion in the verses 42 and 44 of the previous chapter was, be ready. And he repeats that actually at the end of the parable about the virgins, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day and the hour. But you see, we are not just to stare at the sky with the hands in our lap. Yes, waiting and be awake and alert, but also working. And that is how what he now here in this parable works out and he explains to you and me in the story of the talents. And now we read that the man was going abroad. He was not popping out and popping back. Shortly thereafter, no, he was going abroad. And indeed, like the Lord himself. And in verse 19, the bridegroom took a long time in coming. And so also this man returns only after a long time. And he delivered, he entrusted his talents to his servants. Not for keeps, but he gave them in stewardship. They remained his, but they were for them to work with. Now, at the time of the Lord Jesus, slaves often did menial tasks, but sometimes they had also quite high positions. Think about Joseph in Egypt. And, says our text, they were his own slaves. Not only the talents, but also the slaves were his property. And that is something that we so often forget, that we are servants. And that in stewardship, we have our talents. Now, the text does not give any specific instructions. Presumably, they were supposed to know. And there is also no hint of profit sharing or commission or bonuses, all these things that people think are so important today. They worked for their master and for him alone. And what they receive, each of them is a number of talents. The talents were in principle a measure of weight, the largest, and how much it was varied with time and place. We don't actually know how much it was at the New, at the New Testament time, but maybe it was 25, 30 kilos. And it was also often used as a measure of value. 
And then, of course, it depended on what was weighed. It could be copper, silver, or gold. Verse 27, the word for money is the same as the word for silver. It's not entirely certain how much it was, but some of the commentators think it could easily be a quarter to a half a million. 6,000 days of wages. So in any case, the value that was entrusted to them was significant, as are the things entrusted to us. Now in English, the word talent is broader than a measure of weight, which in a way is a happy coincidence because the meaning is indeed broader. It's also the personal capacities of head and of hand and of heart and of power and possessions and of opportunities opening up and facilities that we get access to. Everything that the Lord has given you and me to work with are the talents we received. And then, says the parable, after a long time, the Lord does return. And like in the earlier paragraph in chapter 24, about the evil servant, there is delayed in coming. But in the hour that he is not aware of, he did come. And so it is here. He came. And it is time to settle the account. Time for the Lord to demand and for us to give an explanation as to how we have discharged our responsibilities. It is the time, as the following verses in chapter 25 from 32 onwards make clear, for judgment. And then we take here what's happening in the reverse order. First, the man with the one talent. He had received it. No question about it. And indeed, he doesn't deny. He admits that he had received it. And then let's look at the court proceedings, at the questions and the answers and at the investigation. What's the account that the man gives for what he has done with his talent? Chapter 25, the first 24. Then the man who had received the talent came. Master, he said, I knew you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And then there is the reaction. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. You see, in the question and in the answer, there are dissimilarities and similarities. In the account of what happened and in the conclusion, the verdict. And some of the similarities you might find surprising. Because what the servant said sounds like a hard statement. You are a man who harvests where you have not sown. Now, did the master accept that statement? Well, in essence, he does. And maybe the slave's choice of words is not very good and it's biased, but it is as if the Lord does not want to quibble about how it's phrased. But he takes the slave at his own words and he says, yes, yes, I expected you, my servant, to work for me. I expected the return on what I entrusted to you. Mankind was, after all, created to glorify God. And that is so easy to forget and so difficult to accept at times. 
but we are not here for ourselves. And we are not the purpose in ourselves. We belong to God. But then there are also dissimilarities, because he had called the master a hard man, but the master calls him an evil, lazy servant. The master does not accept that he was a hard man. He was fully entitled to expect a return. He didn't ask for more than they could do, each according to his capabilities, is what the text says. He is not hard, but the servant was evil and lazy. Why? Because he had an excuse. He was afraid, he said, to lose it, maybe, so he buried it. Well, in dangerous times, burying possessions was not uncommon. It's actually what the rabbis advised and what throughout history many people have done. That's why they still find stuff with metal detectors. And we may say, well, we have some sympathy because we ourselves do not always feel like being heroes and serving him in every situation may bring risks of life and limb in times of persecution or maybe today of ridicule and exclusion. And at least the man did not waste it on loose living like the prodigal son. At least he wasn't spending it, his fortune, on pina colada somewhere in a Bahama. But you see, this was not a sin of commission but of omission because he did not use his talents in the service of the Lord. And maybe he did live a decent, prudent and straight life. He is not in the text accused of any riotous living. But he did not use his talents for the Lord. And just having it, preserving it, not abusing it, it's not enough. And as we can read in the verses 24 to 26, they both knew it. Now we may recognize this, because living as a Christian may be difficult. And it can be threatened by comments, you know, why are you spending so much time and effort and money on that church? And why should that take precedence over perfectly decent things such as going to football clubs or whatever on Sundays or the necessary new car or the well-deserved holiday? But the excuse, afraid, was exposed as a lie because he's told he could have gone to the bankers. It would have involved some effort finding, negotiating, checking, not entirely without risk, as we know these days. But it would have been less dangerous and risky than trading. And if you read the text, you get the feeling that it might not have yielded another whole talent, would not have been the master's intention, not very impressive, not what he could expect, but he would have been accepted. But he didn't even make that effort. So afraid was not the issue, it was an excuse, it was a lie, he was unwilling to work for his Lord. And that's why the Lord says, lazy and wicked, that is the verdict on the sin of omission, of not working with his talent. And then our text says, it is taken from him. He lost his talent, not because he had only one. If he had worked with it, he would have gotten the same reward as the others, but he lost it because he refused to use it in the service of his master. And he lost his talent at the setting of the account, settling of the accounts on Judgment Day. But in fact, he had been losing it through time. Because every day that he did not trade or have it in the bank, he was losing trading income or accrued interest that he could not recover. 
And it is like that in real life, isn't it? It's like you have learned a foreign language, don't use it, and then it sort of evaporates on you. Or you have a piece of agricultural machinery and let it sit in the corner of a field, and after a while it's rusted so that you can't use it anymore. If we do not regularly pray, it becomes more difficult to get into the habit. And if we do not read our Bible, it becomes an inaccessible and incomprehensible book. And if we do not engage in church activities, it becomes more difficult to be part. And if we do not learn to prioritize our time and effort and money for God, we slip into a lifestyle that will make it difficult later to change. The talents we refuse to use in his service we will lose. Maybe slowly, party and life definitely completely in death. Like the rich fool, like the girl sent away in the previous verses, and here the verdict is also the servant was wicked, he was worthless, and he will be weeping. So we heard then that until the Lord returns in judgment, we are to use our talents in his service. And we heard in the first place that what we refuse to use, we will lose. But there is in the second place also the message of this text, that what we faithfully in his servant spend, in his service spend, the Lord will extend. He will and reward these efforts. We can see that if we now look at the first two servants, in the parable just preceding this one, at the end of chapter 24, there are two servants, one good and one bad. Here there are three, one bad and two good, because the Lord wants to teach us several things. They were, as we saw, entrusted with the talents. They were not theirs, but God's. We are stewards over what we have, not owners or proprietors. And what we have is not to use or spend for ourselves, but is to work with for the Lord. And then we read in our text that they receive different amounts, five and two. And as we saw earlier, both are large amounts, because this master trusted them with much. But there's also a big difference, a multiple. And that is what we see around us. Some are very gifted, others less so. Some have many possessions, and others have little. And some have great influence, and others are powerless. But isn't that unfair? And the unequal distribution is often felt aggravating. It gets to people, especially of wealth and possessions. And the uneven distribution of wealth can occupy the minds much more than what we actually do with all the things that we have and how we use the many things that are entrusted to us. Now, the Bible has much to say about the relationship between rich and poor, but here the distribution is not the main point. All it says is fair, according to capabilities. The emphasis here is on responsibilities that come with the privileges, with the talents. That is not the way the world look at things. Now one uses what one has for oneself. And if you have so much that you don't know how to spend it, that you can hire a lifestyle advisor who advises you on how to spend your money. And if the spending is for yourself, 
then of course, if that's the goal, then of course the unequal distribution is very painful and galling. But that is not the point of the text. Here the talents are to be worked with for the Lord. And we are warned in Luke, 20, in Luke 12, verse 48, for everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him more will be asked. And then in Romans 14, verse 11, then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. And that is what we see happening in our text the text starts in verse 20 with, he brought five. I think the translation is actually a bit flat, because the word used is brought forward, presented, prospero. And the setting is one of making up, of settling the account of judgment. And so the new talents that are earned for the Lord are to be brought forward and are shown to him. Now, our text just says, he brought talents. There is no specification as to what they were. The only thing the context tells us is that they were for the Lord. You see, there is in our text no instruction as to how these servants were going to work or what kind of talents they were supposed to come back with. These decisions are largely the personal responsibility of each of us. But the questions that we have to ask ourselves in making these decisions, I think, are obvious. And if we are coming forward to present our talents and say, Lord, I did not have much time for you reading the Bible and worshiping in private or in church, but I worked hard and here is my estate, my farm, my flat screen TV, my Rolls Royce, my bank account. What will he say? Well done. And if we are coming forward and we say, Lord, I did not have much time for your people and their needs and their meetings and their activities, but here are my titles. I was the first minister, I was the grand vizier, I was the director general, the footballer of the year, whatever. What will he say? We all know it, of course. Working with our talents for ourselves is one thing. Many decent, upstanding and useful members of society do just that. But to work with our talents for the Lord is another one. And that is what he expects. Not because he is a hard man that we already saw. And in our text he actually praises and rewards his servant. There was no need to do that. Servants who did what was expected to them did not necessarily get praise or reward. But here they do. And also the reward ceremony is a very telling one. Around us, the value of people is often measured in terms of their salary, their wealth, their influence, the size of their office or the price of their car, but not here. And the world can, the world can look at the famous footballer with that fabulous fortune made by playing on Sunday. On the one hand, and at the canteen cleaner who served the Lord by not cutting corners on the other. And then the world makes its choice as to who is a success. But the Lord looks at them and makes another one. Look at the verses 20 to 23. 
One comes with five talents, the second comes with two talents. The difference is still there. Both have worked with what they had to their utmost. And the sentence reporting the second result is actually shortened, as you would expect. Similar story can be a bit shorter in your report. But the sentence reporting the second reward is not. It is verbatim, word for word, the same. It is as if the Lord specifically wants to underline the point. Different results because of different talents, but exactly the same reward. I was the CEO, and I tried to serve the Lord by being fair to my shareholders, the workers, the customers, the creditors, the environment. Well done. Go in into the joy of your Lord. I was a bookkeeper and tried to serve the Lord by being diligent and honest. Well done. Go in into the joy of your Lord. I was a doctor and I went to serve to help the suffering in Africa. Well done. Go in into the joy of your Lord. I was a housewife and a mother and I told my children about you. Well done. Go in into the joy of your Lord. You see, the valuations and the priorities of the world are not those of the kingdom of God. The Lord's valuation is radically different. It is not how much you have in terms of power, wealth, and capabilities, but what you do with whatever it is that he has given you. And if the one talent man had earned one more, he would have received the same invitation. And the two-talent man receives the same reward as the one with five. And what then we read, they used and spent, he did bless and extend. They were able to earn two and five more and were left in charge of those, we read in verse 28, and then were put in charge of even more many things. And they were invited to enter the joy of their Lord. Entering into his joy. When? Well, at Judgment Day, yes. But also today. Because the Lord's promise is not the gospel of jam tomorrow. And this is how it is. If we use our talents for him and live with him, and read his word and come to his work, worship and work for him and do your job to honor him and work with his children, then you will experience the Lord's blessing. And the more you read and listen and study and pray, the more you will understand and enjoy him. And the more you realize that your work and your job is for him, the less you have to rely on these iffy things such as success and salary and promotion for satisfaction because they are here today and can be gone tomorrow. So briefly then and in closing, in this Olivet Discourse, the last lesson, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples in his lament and in his prophecy over Jerusalem that the Old Testament time is definitely over and that the New Testament time, the kingdom of God, has come. And his startled disciples then ask him, when will Jerusalem go? Well, within a lifetime. And when will we see the kingdom of God in its full glory? 
on a day you do not know. And therefore, says the Lord Jesus, because you do not know the day, in the time between my going from the Mount of Olives and my return to the Mount of Olives, watch and be awake. Expect my coming, the arrival of the bridegroom every moment. That is the lesson of the parable of the ten virgins. And also work faithfully for me with all your talents. That is the message of the parable of the talents. And then we heard that what we refuse to use for him, we may lose. But we also heard that what we faithfully in his service spend, he will extend, he will bless. And then there is the conclusion. Enter in into the joy of your Lord. That is at the Lord's coming at the end of time, on the day only God knows that come when we least expect it, but that will surely come. But it is also in this life. Remember the talents were accruing, growing as they worked, and you will experience his extending his blessing, because in serving him you will come to know him ever better. And from the knowledge that your labor is for him, you will derive satisfaction evermore. It is then at the last judgment and already now. Therefore join the banquet of the bridegroom, enter the beauty of his presence, and go in into the joy of your Lord. Amen.